welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of March 16th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. And they call the thing Rodeo. Contestants enjoy wintertime rodeo at Jeffco Fairgrounds by Corinne Westman for the Jeffco Transcript. Thousands flock to Old Town for St. Patrick's Day. Music, food, and lots of green accessories mark the festive occasion by Riley Dunn for the Alvarado Press. Chronicle of an Abandoned Oil and Gas Well, One of Millions. Riders on the Range, Local Voices by Jonathan Thompson. And following up with various articles. And they call the thing Rodeo. Contestants enjoy wintertime rodeo at Jeffco Fairgrounds by Corinne Westerman. Lakewood's Michaela Wilson practically grew up at the Jefferson County Fairgrounds, roping and riding in the county's rodeo team with friend Joey Quintana. So, because Jeffco hadn't hosted a rodeo at the fairgrounds in more than five years, they decided to host one of their own. After more than six months of planning, more than 200 contestants and hundreds of spectators turned out for the March 11th Winter Rodeo at the fairgrounds. The Mountain Valley Rodeo Company hosted contestants from all over Colorado and surrounding states. While Colorado's rodeo season typically starts in April, Wilson said, We did this one as the winter rodeo to get people ready for the season and bring something back to Jeffco. Not only was the time of year unique, but the schedule was too. Wilson and participants explained. The March 11th event was a full rodeo, but only lasted a day. Contestants competed in a slack in the morning, which featured all contestants, Wilson explained. Then, 10 to 12 contestants were randomly selected to rope and ride again at 4 p.m., when the bulk of the spectators were expected. For instance, 50 barrel racers signed up to compete in the morning's slack, and then 12 ran later in the performance. This way, Wilson explained, the spectators get a taste of each event in a timely fashion. Among those competing in the morning slack was Taylor Thompson from Marino, Colorado. Thompson heard about the rodeo from his team roping partner, and he appreciated a wintertime rodeo. He said he gives rodeo competitors something to do, and he'd be willing to compete again if the organizers made it an annual thing. Cadence Hale, a high school junior from Kersey, Colorado, has been riding in rodeos for eight years and does about 50 a year. About half are through a high school circuit through an after-school club, and the other half are with her family. She's done several events over the years, but she was competing in barrel racing and breakaway roping at Jeffco, with the latter event being her favorite. Considering her summers are packed with rodeos, she also appreciated the winter event as a nice change of pace. She said it's a great way to gain experience before the season kicks off next month. 
Aurora's Kevin Martin, whose son competed at Jeffco, also described it as a great learning experience. He noted how the competitors ranged from high school students to seasoned riders, saying the event was open to everyone, which not all rodeos are. Martin has competed in rodeos too and is now a trainer or coach. He had some students competing in March 11's breakaway roping and barrel racing and mentioned that the organizers are former students of his. It's good for the community and the contestants we ha- to have somewhere to compete, he said, adding that he shares Wilson and Quintana's desire to see more rodeo events at Jeffco. Wilson and Quintana hope to make this winter rodeo an annual event and are considering hosting a smaller event in the summer as well. In the days before the March 11th event, Wilson said there's already been a learning curve and imagined there'd be some hiccups the day of. But she believed her organization has enough interest from contestants and spectators to keep its momentum going. We really want to bring rodeos back to Jeffco and the Golden Area, she continued. Chronicle of an Abandoned Oil and Gas Well, One of Millions. Riders on the Range, Jonathan Thompson, Local Voices. Even from a distance, it's clear that an oil and gas well called Senate, State Senate No. 2 in New Mexico has seen better days. The pump jack sits idle, tumbleweeds surround the once moving parts, and the earth smells of crude saturating the soil. According to state records, this well last produced oil in 2007, and even then it was at a rate of about 25 to 50 barrels per year. Though the state inexplicably lists the well status as active, it's not. And the listed owner is a company that no longer exists in any solvent form. In other words, State Senate Number 2 meets the criteria for an orphaned oil and gas well. It's just one of more than a million such wells nationwide, which are a growing environmental threat resulting from decades of policy failure by state and federal regulators. Orphaned is an inaccurate term. The parent companies that originally drilled and profited from these wells mostly didn't die, they fled. Once the wells stopped making money, they were sold to smaller, less solvent companies, and then vanished into a haze of bankruptcy. The unplugged wells were left to ooze, methane, and other nasty stuff with no one around to clean it up. It's abandonment, plain and simple. The state Senate No. 2, for example, was originally drilled by Standard Oil Company of Texas. Yes, that Standard Oil. Back in 1960, but the hole was dry, so workers plugged it and moved on. Two decades later, Raymond E. Sitta, Jr., took over the lease and applied for a permit to reopen the well. When oil came bubbling out, he named it State Senate No. 2. After Sitta died in 2008, his estate sold the well to BIYA Operators, a local mom-and-pop company which sold it to two, in 2014, to Colorado-based Diversified Resources. Three years later, Diversified filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy and abandoned its interest in all the mineral leases in the Horseshoe Gallup field, 
That's how State Senate Number 2, along with some four dozen other wells and a leaky pipeline network, became wards of the state. It's a common story. The Horseshoe Gallup Field is rife with such stories. Another group of wells down the road changed hands several times before being acquired by Chusa Oil, owned by the Dallas producer of a reality television show called Cheaters. Now, Chusa is bankrupt, and its wells and assorted other detritus are a methane-oozing mess. The pattern repeats across New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah. Wyoming has at least 1,500 orphaned wells. In theory, the companies took care of the cleanup tab as a condition of their drilling permit. In reality, the required bond amounts don't get close to covering the costs. The Bureau of Land Management, for example, requires an operator to put up just $10,000 per individual well. Bigger operators can take out a single $150,000 blanket bond that covers all of their wells, whether it's five or 500 on public lands nationwide. Yet the average cost to plug and reclaim a single oil and gas well according to a 2021 study, is a whopping $76,000, with costs for deeper wells shooting up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. That would add up to a $3.8 million cleanup bill for Chusa Oil's 50 wells in the Horseshoe Gallup Field. Court records show the company's reclamation bonds with the Navajo Nation and federal government add up to less than $130,000, or about $2,500 per well. That means federal taxpayers, you and me, are on the hook for the remaining $3.7 million and change. And that's just for one company's wells in one location. Equally maddening, is that the regulators must have seen the warning signs but didn't, or couldn't, act to take the responsible parties take responsibility while they were still somewhat solvent. The 2021 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act authorized $4.7 billion in federal funds for cleaning up abandoned oil and gas wells. On the one hand, it's necessary to end this massive threat to the climate the environment, and public health. But the truth is that it's also a corporate bailout. The antiquated federal royalty rates of 12.5% must be jacked up considerably, 25% anyone, to bring it in line with what states charge. A portion of the royalty should also go into a reclamation fund so that corporate owners pay to clean up the messes they leave. Jonathan Thompson is a contributor to Writers on the Range, writersontherange.org, an independent nonprofit dedicated to spurring lively conversation about the West. He is the editor of The Land Desk and a longtime Western journalist. Thousands flock to Old Town for St. Patrick's Day. Music, food, and lots of green accessories mark the festive occasion. By Riley Dunn. Old Town, Arvada was awash with green on March 11th as folks flocked to the historic district to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. 
The celebration included live music, vendors, specials from local restaurants, calling all corned beef and hash lovers, and of course, green beer. St. Patrick's Day in Old Town has not only become a staple for the community, but attracts visitors throughout the metro area and across the Front Range. Old Town Arvada Business Improvement District Director Joe Hanksler. It is a great opportunity to highlight Old Town and what makes it special. From City of Arvada staff down to each individual business, everyone comes together to really make this a great event. This is certainly an event the Old Town Arvada BID is proud to to present. Over 3,000 people attended the event, which ran for most of the day. Five bands played, including Big Patty, Chancers Hooley, Celtic Legacy, and the Barlow and Recklands. Fubbing, a social disease. Local voices, Jerry Fabianic, columnist. Being a lifelong learner. A ritual I love opening my day with is reading the Merriam-Webster email with the day's word. Sometimes it is one with which I am familiar. But often it is a word whose definition I have forgotten or am unacquainted with. Merriam-Webster is not only my only source for expanding my vocabulary. I learn new words while reading books, essays, and even op-ed columns. I was introduced to one in an article about the escalation of teen loneliness and its correlation to the smartphone. Fubbing. P-H. Fubbing. It is a portmanteau, a word formed by combining elements of two different words, like smog or brunch. In this case, the words combined are phone and snubbing. Fubbing is the act of ignoring others by focusing your gaze on your smartphone. While adults are becoming more practiced in the art, teens have perfected it, much to their social and psychological development detriment. It has a precursor that evolved with the invention of the elevator. The uncomfortable quiet we experience on a ride between floors is understandable given the confined space, but it tells us something about our nature. We have an innate need and even compulsion to communicate with others. And when we enter a complex in which the normal rules of chit-chat are not applicable, we become uncomfortable. Ignoring people in close quarters feels unnatural. The saving grace for elevator passengers is that uncomfortable silence generally ends relatively quickly. Fubbing moves the concept of elevator discomfort to a stratospheric level. It is in a league of its own and has disturbing implications for the loneliness pandemic, which can lead to antisocial behavior among the old and among the young and old alike. Because among the, our survival needs, human companionship and communication is as vital as food, clothing, and shelter. In his play, The Devil's Disciple, the playwright George Bernard Shaw wrote. The worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. Note Shaw's use of negative expression with the words indifference and inhumanity, and how they correlate. Flip the words to positive expression. Acknowledging others is humane. 
So when you're strolling down the street or through a store with your phone plugged into your ear and you are chatting away, you are evincing, evincing a callous indifference to everyone around you. Feeling you're being treated indifferently can exacerbate feelings of loneliness and lead to worse, depression, suicide, and antisocial behavior. Fubbing sows the seeds of antisocial behavior at an early age. During the teen years, young people transition from childhood dependency to adulthood self-reliance. This time is so critical that since the days when we roamed in the African savanna and hunkered in caves, cultures have developed rituals to help move the young through their coming-of-age years. They have done so to help their soon-to-be men and women become effective members of the community. Unfortunately, over the past few millennia, such rituals have pretty much become the domain of religions e.g. Confirmation in Catholicism and the Bar and Bat Mitzvah in Judaism, and educational institutions with their proms and graduation ceremonies. I'm not sure, however, if fubbing completely captures what is happening. Snubbing is an intentional act of disrespect. Showing deliberate disdain for another might be happening in certain fubbing cases, but the reason many especially teens and young adults, bury their noses in their phones as insecurity and poor social skills. When that is the case, it would be better to consider fubbing a symptom rather than a disease. A key purpose of providing positive coming-of-age experiences for pre-adults is to foster healthy interpersonal relationship development. It is essential to their well-being. One of the ironies of teaching tweens and teens is that while the incessant chatter could drive a teacher batty, it is an indicator of healthy growth, assuming the chatter is appropriate and task-oriented when the lesson is underway. Fubbing short-circuits that process, which means the mental health of the individual is compromised, and that impacts their ability to function effectively in their personal lives. Fubbing when practiced by tweens and teens, has major implications for their future professional and civic roles, and that in turn has immense ramifications for our entire society. Growing societal fissures are threatening our democratic processes. If they continue to widen, we will be in danger of becoming socially and thus politically dysfunctional. And if that happens, we can kiss off the American experiment. We have survived the Civil War, the Great Depression, the Cold War, war, social upheavals, and many other crises. And we are confronted with other existential crises. The perfidious threat to our democracy and climate change being at the forefront. But I wonder if fubbing might be the most insidious and potentially destructive crisis of all, one that no miracle vaccine or social program would be able to halt reason is a successful democracy is totally dependent on a healthy, respectful exchange of ideas among an informed, fact-based citizenry. And fubbing helps sabotage that. For as George Bernard Shaw points out, hate is bad enough, but callous indifference to others is quite another. Jerry Fabianic is the author of Sisyphus Wins and Food for Thoughts, Essays on Mind and Spirit. He lives in Georgetown. Our Vada Center takes audiences back to our town, 
Coming Attractions by Clark Reeder. There are some 20th century plays that are simply synonymous with the theater. And right at the top of that list is Thornton Wilder's immortal story of small-town life and love, Our Town. When a show has such a strong reputation, it can be easy to think of it as rigid and traditional, with no production having anything worthwhile to add. But as any regular of the Arvada Center can attest, the company never does a production without giving it a unique spin. Our production to me feels like the product of pure artistic collaboration, wrote Archer Rosencrantz, who plays Joe Crowell and Wally Webb at the center in an email interview. I feel lucky to work under leadership and values everyone's voices in the room, and I think that our production is a reflection of that. As part of the 2023 Black Box Repertory Theater season, Our Town runs at Arvada Center, 6901 Wadsworth Boulevard through Saturday, May 20th. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. Thursday through Saturday, 1 p.m. on Wednesday, and 2 p.m. on Sunday. The play, directed by Jeffrey Kent, is set in one of the fictional town of Grover's Corners, New Hampshire. From 1901 to 1913, it follows the lives of some of the residents as they grapple with major life events and attempt to get a handle on the fleeting nature of existence. Jeff's vision for the show was that this isn't just a show you see. You as the audience feel like a part of the story and a part of the process, almost like being let in on a secret, wrote Clayish, Claylish Calderon, who plays Emily Webb in an email interview. We perform in the round in a very intimate theater, which we have utilized every corner of, so that when the show starts, the audience is being invited to join the world we create for the next two hours. One of the decisions that adds a more personal touch to the experience is to allow Rosencrantz to portray Wally as autistic. As an autistic actor, I'm ecstatic that my director was on board with allowing Wally to be autistic as well for this production. Wally has special interests like most autistic kids and he thrives when he's able to engage with them, they wrote. Even though Emily and Wally don't always see eye to eye, Wally loves Emily deeply. He looks up to her and sometimes envies her ability to succeed in school where he often struggles. One of the many things that makes our town so timeless is how applicable it is to every person, whether on stage or in the audience. This script brought to light how beautiful and spectacular life really is and how precious, not in a way that is fragile, but in a way that made us all want to hold it a little tighter and do a little more with whatever time and space we have, Calderon wrote. Visit arvadacenter.org slash events slash our dash town for information and tickets. Take a ride on the carousel at Lakewood Cultural Center. The Lakewood Cultural Center and Performance Now Theater Company are teaming up to co-present the classic musical Carousel, which runs from Friday, March 17th through Sunday, April 2nd at the Lakewood Cultural Center, 470 South Allison Parkway. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. Friday and Saturday and 2 p.m. Saturday and Sunday. 
a traditional favorite from the legendary duo of Rogers, Rogers and Hammerstein. The show features standards alone, like the show features standards like you'll never walk alone. Find details and tickets at lakewood.org/lccpresents. Wheat Ridge Theater invokes the Irish curse. Sometimes the best way to tackle torchy, touchy subjects is to do so with a funny and irreverent approach. That's the method author Martin Casella uses in his black comedy, The Irish Curse, which is currently running at Wheat Ridge Theater Company, 5455 West 38th Avenue, Unit J. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. Friday and Saturday and 2.30 p.m. on Sunday through Sunday, March 26th. Directed by Selena A. Naumoff, the show is a quote about a self-help group for men with a particular physical shortcoming. According to provided information and dives into thorny questions about identity, masculinity, sex, and the challenges men deal with on the daily. Get tickets for the show at wheatridgetheatercompany.ticketspice.com slash the-irish-curse. And Clark's Concert of the Week, Mike at Lost Lake Lounge. If you've been paying attention to underground rap for the last couple of years, you've probably come across the Google-proof musician Mike. He specializes in the kind of insular atmospheric rap that is made for headphones and evenings spent laying on your floor. He's released numerous critically acclaimed albums and his latest beware of the monkey ranks as one of his best in support of the album. Mike will be stopping at the lost lake lounge at 8 PM on Wednesday, March 22nd lost lake is the perfect venue for a rising star. Mike and openers four, five, four and Anasia Kim. Details and tickets can be found at lost-lake.com. Lostlake.com. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis and he can be reached at Clark with an E dot reader at hotmail.com. Board defers vote to rename Mount Evans. Unexpected twist in process. By Tatiana Flowers. In an unexpected twist on March 9th, the U.S. Board of Geographic Names deferred a vote that would have changed the name of Mount Evans. Many had expected the federal board to approve a new name, Mount Blue Sky, proposed by many Native American tribal leaders and representatives, Governor Jared Polis, a Colorado renaming board, and other community members. But March 9th, before the federal board's meeting, Jennifer Runyon, executive acting secretary of for the U.S. Board on Geographic Names, said the board, federal board had, quote, received a request from a tribal government for government-to-government consultation, and that a final decision had been made to defer a final vote. The U.S. Board did not initially say which tribe asked for the request. 
At the start of the meeting Thursday, the federal board notified attendees that no decision would be made and that there would not be any discussion about the pending proposals for Mount Evans. If the Federal Geographic Renaming Board had voted, the organization's decisions would have marked the end of a lengthy process to give the prominent 14er visible from Denver a much less controversial label. As you know, the proposals that have been submitted to the U.S. Board of Geographic Names to change the name of Mount Evans have been added to the docket for a vote at today's meeting. However, the BGN Board of Geographic Names and the Department of Interior have received a request from a tribal government for a federal government-to-government consultation, and in accordance with the Department of Interior Department Manual 512-DM55A6, titled Intergovernmental Relations, Procedures for Consultations with Indian Tribes. The decision is made to defer today's vote on Mount Evans' name change, said Susan Lyon, Vice Chair of the Board. The manual states a tribe may request that the department initiate consultation when the tribe believes that a bureau or office is considering a departmental action with tribal implications, Lyon said. So no decision will be made on Mount Evans today, and we won't be discussing any of the pending proposals. Clear Creek County officials and Native American tribe representatives said Thursday that they wanted to wait to comment until they had more information about the request to defer a vote. However, during the Colorado Board's meetings last fall to hear proposals on renaming Mount Evans, Northern Arapaho tribe members had advocated for Mount Blue Sky, and Northern Cheyenne tribe members supported the name Mount Cheyenne Arapaho. Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board members had asked proponents of the name Mount Blue Sky if they had plans to meet with those who advocated for Mount Cheyenne Arapaho to negotiate an agreeable name. If we have two names, both with support from different Indian nations, is there any room for the two groups to discuss this further, or do you want us to decide? State Representative Adrian Benavides, a renaming committee board member, asked during that November meeting. A member of a coalition that gathered input from tribal representatives said the group tried many times to engage members of the Northern Cheyenne tribe in discussion, but were unsuccessful. I think the time is long past due for the acknowledgement that that is not an appropriate name. Clear Creek County Commission Chair Randy Willock said he co-led from November 2020 to March 2022 educational, public comment, and deliberation meetings before Clear Creek County officials recommended the, na- the new Mount Blue Sky name to the Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board. He said he had no comment about the deferral until he and other local officials had more information. Generally speaking, My attitude was, and the board's attitude was, that we were giving the biggest credence to the two indigenous proposals, and when they didn't combine and agree on one proposal, we looked at the level of support that each of them had, and there was much, much greater support than we saw from both the indigenous community and non-indigenous community for Mount Blue Sky. And so that was the reason we went ahead and made that choice, Wheelock said before the vote was deferred. For some Native American Coloradans, renaming the peak has been a decades-long process. And for state officials and other community members who engaged in research to support four other name change proposals for the Clear Creek County landmark, 
the process has taken more than a year to complete. The renaming process so far has aimed to strip former Governor John Evans' name from the 14,265-foot landmark. Evans, who served as territorial governor from 1862 to 1865, was forced to resign for his role in the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre, a deadly attack on Native Americans that led to the deaths of more than 230 Cheyenne and Arapaho people, mostly women, children, and other adults. The Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board in November voted unanimously to change the name to Mount Blue Sky, a move supported by Clear Creek County officials, Colorado Governor Jared Polis, and many Native American tribe leaders and members who contributed to the naming process. Anne Hayden, John Evans' great-great-granddaughter, noting that she did not represent all members of her family, testified at a public meeting about renaming the peak and said she favored changing its name. Governor Jared Polis, earlier this month, wrote in a letter to the U.S. Board of Geographic Names that each of the 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado deserves, quote, a name befitting their majesty. While many Coloradans have grown up knowing the name Mount Evans, Polis wrote, it's clear that people want a new name that unites the community and does not divide it. In the letter, Polis cited research by scholars at the University of Denver and Northwestern University, both of which Evans helped found, saying their work showed Evans' culpability for the Sand Creek Massacre without question. During the formal process to consider renaming the peak, Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board members received more than 200 written and verbal statements from Native American tribe leaders, local government officials, community members, and loved ones of those who perished in or survived the Sand Creek Massacre. Chris Arend, a spokeswoman for the State Naming Board, wrote in an email to the Colorado Sun on Wednesday. Considering there were six proposals and hours of public testimony, it was clear there was a strong shared desire to rename Mount Evans, he wrote in the email. Ultimately, Mount Blue Sky struck the appropriate chord to garner supports of Clear Creek County, the Colorado Renaming Advisory Board, and Governor Polis. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. I'm Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Charting a New Course by Giles Clayson. From Denverite, I'll be reading Hear Tribal Storytelling, Eat Fry Bread, and Get COVID Boosted at the 47th Annual Denver Powwow This Weekend by Desiree Matherin. And... What Happened to Bison Number 4 at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science by May Ortega, CPR News. From Westward, I'll be reading Trans Person Kicked Out of Club 
for Using Legal Restroom or Behaving Badly by Benjamin Newfield. And This Colorado Visitor Was Frozen Out of Union Station. Why? by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice, Charting a New Course by Giles Clayson. Paul is a man who can't escape his past, even as he pushes to move forward and climb out of homelessness. I've got a lot of regrets, Paul said. You know, going back, looking back doesn't do you any good. You gotta keep keeping on, but it isn't easy when those regrets of your past keep getting in the way of any possible future. The mistakes that keep him trapped and without options are two felony convictions. These limit his opportunities to find a job and housing. Paul said the first strike against him was because of alcohol. He started drinking at a young age and his habit grew slowly, becoming a problem before he realized what was happening. He joined the army in 1984, right out of high school, and worked his way up the ranks. He joined the special force at the beginning of the Gulf War in 1990, and he didn't like what he saw in the United States once he was deployed. The United States runs around the world claiming to do good, but I saw it. I saw us imposing our will on other countries, Paul said. We're actually the terrorists of the world in a lot of ways. We're going around the world taking what we want and not caring about the costs on other people. By the time Paul returned to Fort Bragg in North Carolina, he was drinking more and he got a DUI. They took my security clearance right away. I had a top secret they pulled because they can't trust the drunk. I don't blame them for that, Paul said. He left the military because he felt his career in the army was over. Not long after, Paul and his wife split. They were fighting constantly, and Paul felt isolated, away from his family in Los Angeles. My wife and I were arguing so much, I just said, I'm taking off. I had to leave my wife, or things were going to get much, much worse, real bad for all of us. I didn't want my little children seeing that. Paul moved to Denver to live with his family. At this point, Paul believes he had become a full-blown alcoholic. He was arrested after an altercation for felony menacing and attempted assault. According to Paul, he threatened someone in an altercation to defend himself. He didn't touch or take a swing and walked away. But the threat was all that mattered. Those few words were seen as acts of violence by the court. He spent three years in jail and on parole. During that time, he gave up alcohol and tried to chart a new course. He said he didn't have any troubles during those three years, but the damage was done and he had two felonies on his record. Bam! They put a black cloud over me. I tried to find a decent job. I tried to pay my own way, Paul said. I wanted to work hard, but nobody would hire me after that. Nobody would give me a chance. I was living in a whole new world where every door was shut to me with those felony convictions. Paul said his new reality had little to no opportunities and ultimately condemned him to the streets. The felonies have prevented him from finding a job. No one would hire him. The felonies also have prevented him from finding housing. No one wanted to take a risk renting to a person who had been convicted of a violent crime. My only option is Section 8 in government support. When you take away someone's ability to get a job, there's no choice. The government has to pay to support them, to house them, and to feed them, Paul said. Paul would like to go back to work and create purpose for himself. He doesn't like the idle time of the streets. 
He doesn't like having frost-bitten toes in the winter and facing heat stroke in the summer. He would like a home with walls and a roof to replace his makeshift tent. But he is running out of hope. I'm healthy, Paul said. I'm 57 years old. I can work if someone would give me a chance and give me a job. But that felony, I don't know. I don't know if I'll be stuck here the rest of my life. The next two articles are from Denverite. Hear tribal storytelling, eat fry bread, and get COVID boosted at the 47th annual Denver Powwow this weekend by Desiree Matherin. Fry bread, dance competitions, tribal storytelling, and more await folks this weekend at the 47th annual Denver March Powwow. The event at the Denver Coliseum, 4600 Humboldt Street, starts Friday at 10 a.m. and ends Sunday. The powwow will also host a vaccine clinic offering initial shots and boosters as part of the We Can Do This COVID-19 public education campaign in partnership with Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. According to the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment, the clinic will be outside the venue all three days and will be available from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Folks can register in advance, but appointments aren't required. Bring your vaccination card if you have it, and know that if you're requesting a specific brand, there's no guarantee that you'll get one. May Malik, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Education Acting with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, said hosting the clinic at the powwow is a way to reach a community disproportionately affected by COVID due to significant underlying disparities in health, social and economic factors, and challenges in accessing quality health care. Malik added, at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, the Navajo Nation and other tribes in the Southwest reported among the highest rates of infection in the entire United States. Now, the campaign is proud to simultaneously honor the cultural heritage of the Native community while also educating attendees about the importance of receiving the updated COVID vaccines as a way to protect yourself, your family, and your community from exposure to COVID. The current seven-day rate of positive tests, or positivity rate, is sitting at about 10.9%, according to DDPHE. DDPHE's data dashboard, last updated February 13th, shows that about 66.2% of people identifying as American Indian or non-Hispanic have had at least one COVID vaccine shot. About 11.7% have received the Omicron booster. DDPHE says vaccine rates are slowly increasing and cases in the city are at a steady low, consistently classified in the low transmission category, according to the CDC over the last few weeks. The health agency added that its vaccine team has been focused on assisting those in shelters, particularly those experiencing homelessness and migrants. In the future, DDPHE said they'll begin booster outreach efforts towards communities with low rates. That outreach looks like more clinics and more education. Vaccination continues to be a high priority for DDPHE, especially in under-resourced populations, a DDPHE spokesperson said in an email. We continue to host vaccination clinics around the city in conjunction with the Public Health Institute at Denver Health, as well as through the DDPHE COVID-19 endemic team. What happened to bison number four at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science by 
May Ortega, CPR News. There's a family of bison in Colorado that hasn't moved a muscle in over a century. They're housed in the archives of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and one of them is missing. Every single thing in the museum's collection, all 4.3 million pieces, has its own number. That includes these bison, cataloged as specimens 1, 2, 3, and 5. So how did these bison get these numbers? As the curator of vertebrate zoology, John Dimboski cares for this taxidermied herd, among many other specimens in the museum. These were part of a founding collection for the museum, Dimboski said. There were three founding collections here at the museum back in 1900. The museum has two floors full of dioramas on public view where you can see taxidermied animals from around the world. But these bison live three floors underground. When you step inside the floor where most zoology specimens live, you're greeted by all sorts of taxidermied birds suspended in flight, a snow leopard crouched on some snowy rocks, and a group of bison. The first bison you see is specimen number two. He's hard to miss because he's the largest, tallest taxidermied animal in the room, and that makes him a bit imposing, standing proudly on all fours, mounted on a slab with wheels. But even with those wheels, Dimboski said he's hard to move. Back in the day, taxidermy was a little different. This thing has a wooden frame, our understanding. It still has a skull in it, so that adds some weight. But it's extremely heavy, he said. We don't like to move it. We've moved it a couple of times, and it's scary. The other bison are smaller, or they're lying down, as if they're taking a little nap. This type of bison is native to the town of South Park, near Kenosha Pass, but it actually ceased to exist in Colorado in the 19th century. The state has a couple of other well-known bison herds. One lives off I-70 west of Evergreen, but they're not native. Those were actually seeded from a remnant population up in Yellowstone in like 1914, Domboski said. They were brought in from Wyoming. There's also a herd east of Denver at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. Meanwhile, at the museum, there's a bit of a mystery. Where is bison number four? The museum was incorporated in 1900, but didn't have a building till 1908, Dimboski said. In that time, they went through and decided not to keep everything. So some of the material disappeared or was probably thrown out. And I don't have an explanation for where that is. But the rest of this small herd has found its place, along with a shelf full of whale baleen and a giant clam that may be radioactive. The following articles are from Westward. Trans person kicked out of club for using legal restroom or behaving badly by Benjamin Newfield. Just after midnight on February 26. Zadie James, who identifies as a feminine non-binary trans person and uses she-they pronouns, went into the women's bathroom at Milk Bar and wound up getting kicked out of the club at 1037 Broadway. I usually, in public scenarios, use the women's bathroom, especially if it's really busy, because I get a lot of harassment using the men's bathroom, says James. The long line for the women's bathroom stretched out the door, James remembers being near the front when a man yelled through the open doorway saying, something along the lines of, Bro, you need to get out of the women's bathroom. 
James didn't realize the man was a staffer and at first ignored him. When it became clear who the man was, James tried to explain that people have a legal right to use whichever bathroom best aligns with their gender identity. But the staffer didn't listen, James says, even though some of the women in line were also arguing with him, insisting they weren't bothered by James's presence. Under Colorado law, individuals must be allowed to use whichever gender-segregated public restroom best aligns with their gender identity. Although the state does not currently require businesses to provide gender-neutral restroom facilities, a bill proposed at the Colorado Legislature this session aims to change that for newly constructed public buildings. Milk Bar, which is loosely based on the club in the opening scene of A Clockwork Orange, sports a flamboyant industrial theme, hosts goth nights, and is frequented by the queer community. James had gone there many times over the years and says this was the first time they encountered a problem like this. On February 28th, James created a post on Instagram about the incident. By this week, it had gathered over 2,000 likes. Many commenters expressed support, while others claimed they had seen or experienced similar incidents at Milk Bar. Milk Bar responded by posting a statement on Instagram on March 11th. Since our inception, Milk Bar has been committed to providing a safe space for patrons and staff of all communities and identities, including all gender identities, sexual orientation, races, 21 plus ages, and beyond. While the post did not refer specifically to the incident involving James, it included this. Per milk policy in Colorado law, all patrons and staff have the right to use the restroom that aligns with their gender identity. In addition to our existing restrooms, we have gender-neutral restrooms that will be opening as part of an expanded space coming to milk soon. They don't actually address the situation that happened or mention it in any sort of way, James points out. To call it a statement is kind of silly. This particular instance involved circumstances that were not made public, responds Tully Bailey, the bar's manager. We have not yet publicly commented on it for the privacy of the customer and employee involved. But Milk Bar is commenting now. Bailey denies that an employee asked James to leave because they were in the restroom. Instead, he says James punched my employee and that was why they were actually asked to leave. That employee, Marquise Fields, is an African-American queer floor walker, Bailey adds. The narrative painted that it was this big bro Chad security guard isn't the case at all. It was Marquise who was floor walking. He's an employee that is training to be a bar lead. Fields says he confronted James after some female patrons flagged him down to say they saw a man in the women's bathroom. Fields went over and observed someone with a beard and a beanie, so he asked James to exit the bathroom. James and Fields both acknowledged that James initially ignored Fields and instead headed into a stall. I did walk away from him in the bathroom after I told him I was in my full legal rights, says James. James did not initially say they identified as trans, but James and their friends quickly began calling Fields homophobic and verbally abusing him. After a while of them saying I was being homophobic, Fields recalls, that's when I said, I'm gay. I don't have anything against you. I'm not homophobic. Learning that James was trans, Fields adds, I said, okay, I understand, 
but I'm not going to have that conversation in front of everybody. I just need you to come chat with me right here. After James left the bathroom, Fields asked James and their friends to leave, citing disruptive behavior. But James believes he was kicking them out because of their gender. I gestured them to the door, the nearest exit, Fields recalls. I tapped their shirt and said, I need you to exit right here. James turned around and swung at me and hit me in the face. According to James, when he tried to pull me towards the exit, I tried to pull away. I did pull away, and there was an altercation in the hallway. We kind of flailed about. James said the only use of force was accidental and calls any assault accusation 100% a lie. Milk Bar, at its core, has been a longtime supporter of inclusion, everybody from all walks of life and everyone from the LGBTQ community, Bailey says. While Milk Bar has faced an onslaught of criticism on social media in response to James's post, he says that the club has not noticed any decrease in customers. James's cover fee was refunded through a friend. Bailey says he has since tried to reach out to James but is not connected. We would love to have an open dialogue with the customer that had the problem, he says. According to James, no one from Milk Bar has reached out, but they would be open to a conversation if the club is willing to apologize. If they contacted me, I would talk to them. Milk Bar does not intend to take legal action regarding the blow sustained by Fields. James, however, plans to file a discrimination claim with the Colorado Civil Rights Division and has pro bono representation through Tyrone Glover Law, a high-profile civil rights law firm. Helen O., one of the attorneys working on the case, says the firm wants to ensure that no other such incidents occur at Milk Bar. There should have never been a confrontation in the first place, she says, adding that Fields was not legally justified in asking James to leave the bathroom, making the subsequent confrontation irrelevant. Milk Bar violated the law when it demanded that Zadie leave the restroom and ejected them from the establishment based on their gender identity, says O. For Milk Bar to now claim that Zadie pushed or hit the bouncer while Milk Bar was illegally and forcibly removing them, reaffirms that Milk Bar knew that it was discriminatorily ejecting Zadie, and it is a ridiculous attempt to evade liability by blaming Zadie for Milk Bar's own illegal actions. According to Bailey, Milk Bar will host a training at the end of the month that addresses the incident and focuses on employee relations with the trans community and the LGBTQ community in general. But first, Denver communists are planning a Trans Day of Resistance at Civic Center Park today, March 17th. The protest will address an increasing amount of anti-trans rhetoric and legislation throughout the country, according to the group which will then lead a protest down to Milk Bar at 8.30 p.m. The club is aware of the planned action, says Bailey. On March 15th, after the protest was announced, Milk Bar posted on Instagram that the club fully supports the trans and non-binary community as well as the right to protest. James plans to take advantage of that right tonight. This Colorado visitor was frozen out of Union Station. Why? by Katie Cheshire. The first week of March, 63-year-old Elizabeth Woods flew from western New York to Denver to ski. She'd planned her trip meticulously. She'd take the RTD A-line train to Union Station, stay at Hostel Fish, 
and then take Bustang, the Colorado Department of Transportation's statewide bus service, to Glenwood Springs to ski at Sunlight Mountain. On the way back, she'd do the same in reverse. Unfortunately, her return trip didn't go as planned. There was something that happened at Loveland Pass, and the traffic on the highway was backed up, she recalls. Bustang was supposed to drop her off at Union Station at 10 p.m., giving her time to shower and change at the hostel before she took the train to the airport around 3.45 a.m. to catch her early flight. Because of the delay, though, she didn't get to Union Station until almost 2 a.m. The first train to the airport would leave at 3 a.m. Woods decided to just wait at Union Station for an hour. But there was a lady there to meet us, and she immediately corralled everybody, didn't ask a single question, and brought us up to this one door that was locked, Woods remembers. She unlocked the door and said, you need to leave, then locked it behind us, and at that point, you're literally on the platform. With nowhere else to go, Woods was stuck in the cold on the train platform, along with many people who clearly weren't travelers, all milling around in an effort to stay warm. She was soon approached by a man who appeared to be homeless and told her his name was Michael. He asked if she'd like him to teach her a trick for staying warm. Soon, another person approached and asked if she'd use her phone to look up a car rental for him. Woods did, but Michael got frustrated with the other man and walked away, then came back. Over the next hour, Woods saw several more altercations between people while she felt abandoned by station personnel. I've never been to a union station that's closed, she says. That's like an oxymoron. You're supposed to go to union station to make a connection. You're supposed to be able to wait in a heated room and be able to sit down on a bench and wait, but not in Denver. That's because they have a homelessness problem. I get it, but I don't think this is the solution. In fact, Woods says, befriending Michael was probably what kept her safe. If I'd been there by myself and he wasn't with me, who knows who would have approached me? According to both the Regional Transportation District, which oversees the bus concourse and light rail trains going to and from the station, and Sage Hospitality Group, which manages Union Station itself, both the station and the bus concourse behind the station are closed for cleaning for several hours every night. The Union Station building is closed for cleaning Monday through Saturday from 2 a.m. to 5.30 a.m., and Sunday from midnight to 5.30 a.m., while the bus concourse is closed from 12.30 a.m. to 4.30 a.m. daily. Our facility's maintenance supervisor confirmed that we have been installing signs on the doors that indicate we are closed during that time frame, says Tina Jacquez, public relations manager for RTD. We keep the station open during times when there is bus service coming in and out of the station from 4.30 a.m. to 12.30 a.m. But for a traveler coming into Denver, those closures might not be immediately clear. When you search Union Station on Google, it says it's open 24 hours. That is complete nonsense. They're not, Woods says. They're lying on their website. And that's one thing I really don't like. I'm not a liar myself, and so I don't tolerate it, particularly from Denver Union Station. According to Julie Dunn, a Union Station spokesperson, the correct hours are listed on Union Station's website. The building is open 24 hours for hotel guests and Amtrak customers, but not for other people, she says. While the Google result doesn't populate those details, 
Dunn says Union Station has asked for an update to the Google Hours in order not to confuse visitors. As tens of thousands of people pass through Denver Union Station daily, a thorough cleaning is required nightly, Dunn notes, and we try to minimize the disruption to guests. Woods' trip was disrupted before she arrived at Union Station. According to CDOT, if a Bustang route can't be completed, the district will get hotel rooms for stranded travelers. But Woods' trip was completed, even if it took hours longer than anticipated. Generally, if a bus arrives at its destination, albeit late, the passengers are not provided with hotel accommodations, says Tamara Rollins, CDOT communications manager. However, our goal is always to provide excellent customer service, and together with our operators, we will evaluate extenuating circumstances and do what is appropriate for our customers. RTD has jurisdiction over the bus concourse.